Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. iHeartRadio and WGY presents Upstate Unsolved. Beyond the headlines of Upstate New York's Unsolved Crimes. In this season... We dive decades into the past to bring the murders of two Albany County women into the spotlight. In this episode. We don't want to do something that we don't think will be fruitful, but we also don't want to write off an opportunity to collect potentially highly valuable evidence. And we've talked to Sandy and the family, and while it's a very sensitive and tough decision to make, we're all on the same page. The modus operandi is anything that the offender does to evade detection. So the lure is his MO. And now the thing is, is that your MO can change. The address was 369 Madison Avenue, and that sticks out because of the numeric from the 2nd Avenue address that was on the rent receipt book. That was 369 2nd Avenue. So that's definitely interesting. It would probably be railroad property. and They're notorious about maintaining their property. He was a secret in her life. And I think she loved him dearly. And he had a great deal of respect for her, which her husband did not. This is Upstate Unsolved, Episode 5, Continuing a Complex Investigation. I'm Phoebe LaFave. When someone is the victim of a homicide, their friends and family become essential in the investigation into their death. Their loved ones help paint a picture of what their life was like and give investigators insight into who could be responsible for their murder. Those closest to the victim are also the first to be looked at as potential suspects, as it's more likely to be killed by someone you know than someone you don't. As we have touched on in previous episodes, Albany police spent a great deal of time and effort looking into the murder of Catherine Blackburn. They spoke to approximately 200 people ranging from her close circle of friends and family, widening to people who related to certain elements of her case. 55 years later, the vast majority of people who knew Kate have passed away, making the original interviews typed up by investigators decades ago crucial to understanding who Kate was and helping the current investigation into her murder. Kate's surviving nieces have been invaluable when it comes to learning about Kate's life. Although she was a very private person, their anecdotes about their aunt have helped fit pieces of the puzzle that is Kate's life together. Sandy, who was 20 years old when Kate was murdered, was very close with her aunt. Every time someone dies, all the good comes out, and you elaborate on it. But I can tell you honestly and truly, I don't ever remember her raising her voice. She was always smiling and kind. She was very generous. And she was very caring. And her and my mom were really close. She would come over a couple of times during the week and take care of my grandmother, who was an invalid, because my mom worked. So my Aunt Kate would go, they would take turns. My aunt next door 
where we lived and then my Aunt Kate because my Aunt Sophie was too far away. I spent a lot of time with her, but you know, I wish I could remember just one time where I was with her because I just can't. It was too long ago. But I remember the overall on how she was. She didn't have children, so we were her children. She doted on us, all of us. She loved all of her nieces and nephews, and she loved her sisters. Sandy recalls that Kate was always there for her and remembers only one time when she said no to Sandy's request for help. She was my godmother. So anytime I ran into a jam, and Kate, you know, I'd call her up. You know, I did this, this, and this. Can you help me out? And I wanted to buy a car, and my mother would not help me. My mother said, if you want a car, then you need to find a way to pay for it. That's the way I was raised. So my aunt co-signed for me. I didn't know you had to put water in a battery. And on Quail Street, there was a garage right across the street. Well, one day my car wouldn't start, and the garage looked at it, and he said, well, you didn't put any water in it. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know I was supposed to. So I needed to get a new battery, and I didn't have the $45. dollars mm-hmm. So my mother's in on all this, and she would not help me out on it. And uh, don't help me out. It's okay. I'm going to call Aunt Kate. Well, she called Aunt Kate before me. And it was the very first time in my life that my aunt said no. Nope. She goes, you'd have to find another way. I don't remember exact words, but I can't help you this time. You need to be responsible, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I did not know until after she died that my mother got in touch with her before me, told her not to help me, that I needed to learn. Sandy's younger sister, Mary Ann, recalls the way their aunt presented herself. She was confident. She was always very confident. When she was going to church or for a holiday, she would dress up definitely. And when she was working around the house, she would have her work clothes on, your older clothes that you would do gardening in or housework in. She always looked nice unless she was expecting us and she would get ready. But she always looked very, very nice. She would have a nice print dress on because back then that was the style. For Christmas, she would put on a nice dress and pearls and earrings. She was always very well presented and confident, smiling. She was always smiling. Kate married her husband, Jesse Blackburn, on July 3rd, 1938. Although Kate was a staunch Catholic, she and Jess were not married in a church, which was a shock to her family. Soon after their wedding, the two began living separately as he was a member of the Air Force and had to move around, alternating living overseas and on the West Coast. Kate's surviving nieces have little to no memories of Jess, with the bulk of the information they know about him are from family anecdotes. Marianne shared what she remembers about Jesse. I remember hearing a real lot about him, but he never lived in the area when I was growing up. I remember he came to Albany when I was younger, real young, like maybe four years old, and he brought us jackets from Japan because he was stationed in Japan, and my aunt gave them to us. He didn't give them to us. I remember seeing pictures of him. And I remember one time on a Sunday when we went over to my aunt's house after church, my mother had a little silver vase with a white rose in it. And she said to my aunt, happy 25th silver anniversary. I remember my mother saying, do you think he'll remember and call you? This one time, 
my other aunt and my mother and Aunt Kate brought his name up and mentioned how he brought my Aunt Kate flowers one evening or something, but he actually got them from the cemetery. Mary Ann's older sister, Sandy, shares similar memories and only remembers meeting him after Kate's funeral. We have no recollection of him in our lives, yet they were married. My cousins, my sister, none of us have any recollection of him. We saw his pictures. She had his pictures up in his uniform. But I don't ever remember meeting him, and I probably did as a child. I just don't Mm -hmm. know about it. He used to write to her and ask her for money. And out of the kindness of her heart, man, she was sending it right to him. Kate was a very organized person. Her house was pristine, her records and correspondences filed away with careful precision. Because of this, Albany Police Sergeant Melissa O'Donovan has been able to read through some of Kate's letters with her husband, Jesse. Her marriage dissolved pretty shortly after they were married. He was in the military, essentially their entire marriage. And I had a chance to read through some of their correspondence. Not all of it. I mean, there was a time you saw the box. It was huge. Mm-hmm. I went through a chunk of them, and it seemed quite recently after he was enlisted into the military that it seemed like he was kind of a flake. He was unreliable and inconsistent, and she couldn't depend on him. She actually said in one of her letters, she was wondering where all of his money was going because she's like, you're saying that you're not going out and you're not doing these things and you're working all the time, then why are you asking me to Western Union you money literally every other week? And I'm not exaggerating, it was every other week. And she's like, not for nothing, I'm here working full-time paying for this house and then you're asking for money on top of that he wasn't even overseas because we talked about he was in japan for a while this was even before he was overseas he's in like california already asking her for money so i mean i think early on she had those doubts and those feelings and after a while i mean he stayed in the military it is also known that he had different girlfriends throughout their marriage and kate received letters from some of those women something sandy remembers hearing about He had girlfriends, and those girlfriends used to write her letters thinking they were writing to his mother. That was so sad. Melissa has seen some of these letters as well. There was one I found that was ripped into about 25 pieces that I put back together. There was a couple. I think she kept everything. But Kate was not completely alone. In 1948, she met Ben Maskin, a kind-hearted Jewish man with polio, who sold fresh produce and lived with his mother. Ben was interviewed extensively by police and was very quickly ruled out as having anything to do with her murder. Kate was at her core a very private person about most aspects of her life, but especially about her relationship with Ben. Her family had no idea she was in a relationship with this man, and only a handful of her friends knew of his existence. However, according to Ben's statement, The two fell in love shortly after they met and kept company until the time of her death, meaning they were together for 16 years. As with any homicide investigation, when the victim has a significant other, especially one that is also married, investigators must ask the hard questions and dig deep into the relationship with the victim, which they did with Ben, and he was very forthcoming. He expressed his knowledge that Kate was still married and living separately from her husband, who lived in Japan. He also disclosed that they were not intimate for a large portion of their relationship and that he never stayed over at her home. 
The two would go for long drives and he would help with small projects around her house. Kate was close to her family, but for 16 years, she kept her relationship with Ben a secret. Sandy and her family were unaware of his existence until the funeral. We never met him because my aunt was Catholic and he was Jewish. You didn't even think about divorce in the Catholic Church. That was forbidden. And even if you did get a divorce, you never thought about marrying or having a personal relationship with a Jewish man. So it was a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. And it sounded to me like she loved him dearly. And all her friends knew about him, but the family did not. Her best friend, Marie Hogan, was the one who told me that my aunt and Benny used to go up to Carvel Ice Cream on Central mm -hmm. and Fuller, and they used to sit parked in a car a little bit of a distance away and watch me work. That, to me, says she wanted him to know her family. And then she would send him up to the window. I didn't know who he was. Customer, sure. You know, off a Sunday here. Never met him after she died. Okay. I met him then. But before that, no, he was a secret in her life. And I think she loved him dearly. And he had a great deal of respect for her, which her husband did not. Sandy laments not knowing such an important person in her aunt's life. Benny was a really nice man that yes. we know of. There's nothing indicating that he was nothing but nice. We just feel really sad that we didn't know him because if she loved him, then we would have wanted him. I wish in my heart that, you know, we did know. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and I felt sad for him because he lost the love of his life. Because of the secrecy of their relationship and the fact that Ben and the mutual friends he and Kate shared have passed away, the only insight into their relationship comes from the police reports, which we discussed with Melissa. The family was unaware of any relationship that Catherine and Ben had, but they did have a relationship for a long time. When I say that, I mean they had a friendship long before they were in a relationship together. And Ben actually is the one who bought that house for Catherine. There are rent receipts when I was going through personal effects. There are rent receipts with Catherine's name and Ben's name on them. So from reading the rent receipts, I gather that Ben started renting to Catherine. If that's how they met, it's possible. I don't know for sure. She the gave 50s. the house to Ben when she died. It was yeah. in her will. Yes. So this started out, he's running the apartment to her. He ends up giving it to her to live in because he lived with his mother on Green Street. So he very much was involved in taking care of her. We talked about how she was very independent and self-sufficient, but there are a lot of behaviors that are documented and noticed that point to him being a very caring person. They were involved in each other's lives quite a bit. And in his investigation report where he's interviewed, when he doesn't hear from her that day, he's visibly bothered by it. He calls her a bunch of times. He drives over to the house. And this is, again, a time long before cell phones and text messages and everything like that. But he's still putting in that 
effort time and time again to raise a reaction from her and get a hold of her. And unfortunately, we know why he wasn't able to. It's sad. It's really heartbreaking that they were really there for each other. You had two people. I mean, he was independent, single, not married, didn't have a family of his own. And we already established she's single, living on her own. And they have each other. And you know how important they must have been to each other and how much support they offered each other. And to have the family not know him personally or know anything about him or know anything about the relationship, it is a little sad that we can't really touch on that because what we know is from reading his statements through the case binder. That being said, that minimal interaction we have from him, it's clear that the detectives felt for him and had a great deal of empathy for him and he didn't display any behavior that was troublesome or worried them one bit. The interviews with the people in Kate's life largely say the same things. She was a nice person, had a set routine, kept to herself, and didn't often divulge information about her personal life. However, there were a few statements from people who lived around Colony Street that claimed she would occasionally get into arguments with some of her neighbors. Nothing explosive, but if someone was causing a disturbance near her home, she would say something to them. Across from Kate's house on Colony Street stood a row of garages that people could rent out either for their cars or storage. There was a parking lot in front of the garages, and that area became a hangout for teenagers in the neighborhood, blasting their radios and drinking. Kate was seen on more than one occasion sternly reminding them to keep it down. We have been unable to identify these group of teens who regularly spent time in this lot, There's a strong possibility that one of these individuals could have seen something that could be informative in Kate's case. If you or someone you know remembers spending time in that area as a teenager, please reach out. After police conducted the necessary interviews with Kate's close circle, they widened the net of their investigation to her acquaintances, especially any that partook in any suspicious behavior. One person who appears in a few case notes is the son of Kate's former upstairs tenants. He moved out of their apartment in 1961 when he got married and moved to Troy Street. In Ben's statement to police, he recalls that when he and Kate were newly dating, they would be parked in her driveway, and this man, who was younger at the time, would sneak up to their car and attempt to watch them through the car windows. On the day Kate's body was found, this man appeared at the scene and offered his help to police. The only two pieces of furniture found in the upstairs apartment where Kate was murdered were a dresser and a cabinet. Officers were unable to locate who they belonged to initially, leaving them to wonder if they were brought by the alleged tenant who was supposed to be viewing the apartment that Saturday evening. But the former tenant came forward to say that he had given those items to Kate. This man was never connected to Kate's case. One of the strangest, unexplained elements of Kate's case is a report given to investigators by a taxi driver who detailed a bizarre trip he took her on. He was unable to provide an exact date, but in the year 1964, he told police he picked Kate up at her home and brought her to a residence on Madison Avenue. He claims she told him that she was afraid to go into the house alone and asked that he accompany her to the front steps of the home. He complied and says she was able to gain entry to the front door of the house. He reports that she had a key, but he was unsure if the key worked on the door or if it was unlocked. 
They entered the first floor, and from there, Kate walked to the rear, and the taxi driver overheard Kate arguing with a man who was in the basement apartment. From what he could tell, Kate and the man were arguing over bed linens. Kate then told the man she was arguing with that she was going to report him to the police, and the man said, go ahead. The taxi driver drove her to the police station, where she filed a complaint and then drove her back to the home on Madison Avenue and left her there. While the taxi driver was unable to definitively identify the photo the police officers had of Kate in the office, he described the woman as a stocky, fairly good-looking woman who had taken the day off from her job on Fuller Road, which is where Kate worked, and he was able to bring police officers to Kate's address, saying that's where he picked her up. Officers also asked him to bring them to the address on Madison, which he did, and the address immediately stood out to them. The address was 369 Madison Avenue, and that sticks out because of the numeric from the 2nd Avenue address that was on the rent receipt book that was 369 2nd Avenue, so that's definitely interesting. That address was looked into extensively, and they were never able to ascertain who Kate was arguing with or what specifically they were arguing about. In addition to investigating the people in Kate's life, acting on tips like the taxi driver's, and looking extensively into the name and address found on the rent receipt book, police expanded their investigation to sex offenders in the area and people who had violent criminal records. Investigators also searched for suspects by the footprints left behind in the blood on the floor where Kate was found. There were about 12 in total and appeared to be a men's size 10 or 10 and a half and looked to have sponge or crepe rubber soles, commonly seen on the Keds brand or a type worn by construction workers. They too looked into people looking for apartments, wondering if the killer would use the same lure again. Throughout the case file, there are pages upon pages of interviews with people who fit into one or more of these categories. But there's a few that stand out more than others. One notable sex offender, whose neighbors report seeing young girls and young boys in and out of his apartment at various times during the day and night, was checking newspapers, looking for an apartment to rent. He also had a pair of work shoes, similar to the footprints found at the crime scene. When investigators approached him, he seemed, quote, highly nervous and asked the investigators if they were trying to connect him to Kate's murder, although he gave no indication he had heard about her murder even though he claimed to read the newspapers every day. He couldn't say if he knew or even heard of Kate. Police were able to search his apartment and found books on sexual behavior, along with a picture of an ex-girlfriend with pins stuck in her upper torso. A search of his car revealed a tube of purple eyeshadow and a newspaper from September 22, 1964, that related to Kate's case. He was an Army veteran and was honorably discharged in 1946. This person fits the description Kate had given of the tenant. Next, found with numerous newspaper ads, one suspicious man was looking for apartments to rent in Albany. He also had several keys in his possession that investigators deducted were keys to houses and garages for rent. Additionally, he had several newspaper clippings regarding Kate's murder and owned a pair of shoes with soles similar to the patterns found at the crime scene. 
He cooperated with police and brought the papers to the station, but ultimately asked to keep the papers as he was still interested in many of the ads and he took the papers with him. Finally, the last person to illustrate the themes of the investigation had a history of violent criminal behavior and was known to hang around with a bad crowd. When he had a psychiatric evaluation, he claimed to have never stolen anything, although he had indeed been previously charged with everything from petty larceny to third-degree burglary. When he was taken into custody at the time of the investigation report, he was drinking and told officers he, quote, would not get in trouble again in the future because he was too smart to get caught. Police were unable to connect any of these individuals to Kate's case. As we've previously discussed, one of the frustrating elements of investigating cold cases, especially ones from 55 years ago, is that the bulk of what we have to go by is what the original investigators provided. While the Albany Police Department conducted an extensive investigation, there are questions that some of the reports leave unanswered, specifically follow-up notes for individuals who seemed suspicious at the time detailing why someone was cleared or if more needs to be looked into. Part of the extensive work the students at the Cold Case Analysis Center conduct is scouring newspaper articles before and after Kate's murder, searching for any cases that bear any resemblance to Kate's. In their research, they found one case and brought it to the attention of the current investigation. The murder of 84-year-old Julia Reynolds found dead in her apartment on May 16, 1965, on Hamilton Street in Albany. Police received a call from a man who lived on the first-floor apartment in the same building as Julia and had not heard from her for several days. There was also a putrid stench coming from her apartment. All doors leading to her flat were locked, and officers forced entry into a hall door that led into the bathroom of her apartment. Julia's body was found lying on her back on the floor of the living room with a sheet completely covering her body. Her clothing had been ripped open. The room where she was found had been completely ransacked, but the other rooms in the apartment were untouched. Her body was badly decomposed and the sheet covering her was tucked underneath her. On top of the sheet were pieces of ransacked paper and some of the cushions from the couch were on top of the sheet, indicating they had been removed after the sheet was placed on her body. Underneath the sheet, her face had two linen cloths placed neatly over her face, stained with dried blood, covering it completely. Just below the center of her breast were two separate scratches, around four inches long. And a curling iron was found with the cord underneath both breasts and the rod part of the curling iron between the left arm at the inside of the elbow and the outer side near the ribs. Newspaper articles detailed Julia's murder and compared it. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. To Kate's. 
There was an arrest made in connection to Julia's case, but not for her murder. According to the May 20, 1965 edition of the Times Union, 22-year-old Frank Mallison Jr. pled guilty to taking a dollar and fifty cents from Julia Reynolds' pocketbook and ransacked her home. Mallison, who lived above Julia, told police that he was coming down the stairs the Thursday night before her body was found when Julia asked him if he would like to look at pictures of cats. He claims she knew he liked cats and would be interested in seeing pictures. As he was about to leave, Mallison said Julia collapsed on the floor. He thought she was dead, so he rifled through her purse and took $1.50. He then went back to his apartment and got a sheet, covered her body, and continued to ransack the apartment before fleeing. After her body was found and the newspapers began reporting on the discovery, he became scared and turned himself in. The official ruling of Julia Reynolds' death is a heart attack. Police in 1965 did look into the possibility of Julia's death being related to Kate's murder, but because her official cause of death was by natural causes, their two cases were not formally linked. While Julia's case is not ruled a homicide, a modern-day look at the facts of her case leaves a lot of questions remaining. Why were her clothes ripped? What made the scratches on her chest? Why was there a curling iron across her body with the cord underneath her breasts? Why would Mallison ransack her apartment for $1.50? Because the students at the Cold Case Analysis Center brought her case to the attention of the Albany Police Department, these questions are now actively being examined. When we first spoke to Kate's niece, Sandy, she mentioned how she and her sister and cousins would get to Kate's house. And in doing so, we discovered that there was an area behind Kate's house that could be an important aspect of her case. In our growing up years, she lived at 117 Colony Street, and if you went the back way through the hill and fields, our backyard was right there. But if you went down Colony Street, took a left and went over Pearl Street, and took another left and went up in Ward Street. So probably 10 minutes, a long way. But many times we went, there was a dump there, and we used to go through the dump to get to her house. And I'm not talking about like a garbage dump. I'm just talking about where people dumped stuff. When we spoke to Kate's other nieces, they too described the same thing. An area that they would walk up over a hill through high weeds and a field where people would leave scrap metal or old furniture no longer needed and that that would lead to Kate's property. According to her nieces, these dumps were not unique to Kate's area during that time period. When I spoke to Albany historian and retired state assemblyman John J. McEnany, I asked him if he knew anything about these unofficial dumps that seemed to be commonplace throughout Albany, and he knew exactly what I was talking about. It's railroad property. See, the railroad went diagonally from Broadway over to uh, North Pearl. And so if you looked at a map of her block, it would be a triangle. And yeah, the triangle would be a Pearl on one side, on the east, and then you would have Colony Street, and then there would be the railroad tracks itself. And it would be not visible to the general public because it was in, in the back of the backyards, but the only thing it was up against was the railroad tracks. And the railroad tracks got 
huge numbers of trains every day. Trains were shorter than they are today, and there was more train traffic. So it was the type thing that I'm sure it was not the kind of dump that people would come from a great distance to dump things, but certainly there would be a tendency to throw things over the fence. It would probably be railroad property, and they're notorious about maintaining their property. The more we dive into Kate's case, the more the theory of a transient being responsible for her murder becomes more plausible. Whether they travel for business, work on the railroad, or consistently move, crossing jurisdictional lines to commit their crimes would make it easy to avoid detection, especially in 1964 when communication between police agencies was lacking. With Kate's home being in close proximity to the railroad, this further deepens the possibility of this theory. Albany police knew that Kate's murder was an unusual case, and as we previously discussed, they sent out teletypes using the New York Statewide Police Investigation Network to disseminate details of Kate's case and request information for any cases that shared similarities with her murder. They received a handful of responses, but four teletypes stood out to the original investigators and investigators today. On August 9, 1961, in Hartford, Connecticut, an intruder gained access to the apartment of a 20-year-old female victim by forcing open the rear screen door when the victim had begun preparations for taking a bath. She was naked and had gone to her bedroom to pick up bath powder. While walking back to her bathroom, the attacker approached the woman from behind, ultimately placing his hands around her neck, rendering her unconscious. He bit her on both breasts, and there was a laceration on her lip. He picked her up and placed her in the bathtub with her head under the faucet and both legs hung over the side and held her face under the running water, which he increased in temperature, causing burns on the left side of her face. He then held the victim under the water. He took her wallet and fled through the back door. The suspect is described as a white male in his 20s, 5'4", with dark wavy hair. On October 24, 1962, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a 40-year-old white female was found dead in her home. She was beaten, strangled, and stabbed in the throat, once in the center and once on the left side of her neck, with a butcher knife, pocket knife, and scissors lying next to her body. All items were believed to have come from her home. The bruising injuries were all facial and appear to have been made with a fist. The teletype notes that only her panties had been removed and there is no evidence that positively indicates rape. Additionally, the area where the crime occurred is referred to as the Fruit Belt, and at the time of her murder, there was a large population of migrant workers. On November 29, 1962, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a 72-year-old woman was found beaten on the face and head, with marks on her wrist indicating they were tied. Her body was found naked in the bathtub with her clothing found in a trash can. The suspect is described as a white man with a stocky build who dressed nicely and claimed to have a good job. He checks ads in newspapers for furnished rooms, calls the person who placed the ad, saying he would like a room for himself, and during conversation brings up that he may want a room for another employee or his brother. He arrives at the home by himself stays around an hour to gain confidence, and leaves after freshening up. The teletype listed a slew of aliases and says the man is known to operate in Ohio. 
The fourth teletype is a little different than the first three. It's not a homicide, but it's labeled as a sadistic sexual assault. On February 5th, 1965, in Des Plaines, Illinois, a female was the victim of extreme trauma in her own home. The attacker entered the woman's home under the pretense of being a potential buyer of her house that was up for sale. The white male looked quickly around the first floor and then went to the basement where he called the victim down to ask where the light switch was. He asked her to take off her clothes and when she refused, he tore them off. The teletype states that he did not rape her but committed, quote, every other act. He was said to be between the ages of 35 and 40 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, and 150 pounds. While none of these crimes committed mirror exactly what happened to Kate, there are important elements in each case that stick out. In Hartford, both breasts were bitten. She was burned, and there was a laceration on her lip. Kate's breasts and lips were burned. In Harrisburg, the woman was beaten on the head and stabbed twice in the neck, once in the center and once on the left side of the neck, with knives believed to have come from her home. Kate was hit on the head and stabbed in the same places with her own kitchen knives. In Pittsburgh, the killer gained access to the victim's home by posing as a tenant, and she was found naked with her clothes in the garbage. While we can't say for sure Kate's killer is the same man who put down a deposit for her vacant upstairs apartment, the missing rent receipt, and the fact that a tenant never materialized after her death leads us to believe that that is a connection. In Des Plaines, while the woman wasn't murdered, the teletype describes her attack as a sadistic sexual assault. The attacker also posed as a prospective buyer of her house, While again, that lore seems similar to what happened to Kate, we've uncovered a new piece of information about Kate's prospective tenant. We discussed that she told her boyfriend, Ben, that a tenant had put down a deposit for the upstairs apartment. He was a short man in his 50s and said he and his mother were moving from 369 2nd Avenue. However, she mentioned to her friend Elizabeth that she was renting out her upstairs apartment to an unknown man who said he lived in Connecticut and his mother lived on 2nd Avenue and she would be moving in as well. Elizabeth states that the man asked Kate if she had a big cellar because he had a lot of books to store. Could the basement be a connection between the Dust Plains assault and Kate's murder? Dr. Christina Lane, the director of the Cold Case Analysis Center, is a criminologist and explained in depth how although these cases have different components, they can't be ruled out as being unrelated. So when we try to link crimes together, you're trying to look at similarities in crime scene characteristics, similarities between the victim, and not only that, it's also similarities in what you might deduct and how possibly the offender lured the victim, how he attacked the victim, so this would be offender characteristics across the board. Now, if we start with Blackburn, we had a clear lure, So this individual's planned with the tenant. Now, the thing is, is about the tenant lure, this does not make it unique. A lot of killers out there use this lure. With the statement, you don't want to frighten everybody with it, but anything that will set somebody up to be alone, and also you have the deterrent component. When I talk about deterrence, I'm talking about the MO. So let's start talking about more detail. The 
modus operandi is anything that the offender does to evade detection. So the lure is his MO. And now the thing is, is that your MO can change. So a person could want to blitz attack by strangling the person and then realize that strangulation takes too long and the person may fight. So they might slit the throat quickly or find other ways to incapacitate the victim. However, another element is signature. Now, signature and MO could be related. Signature is what they need, is the heightened arousal element that is related to their fantasy. But the fantasy over time can be honed and go back and forth, especially when we're talking about necrophilia or sex crimes, is about the most heightened arousal. So just like when you rehearse for any athletic event and you try and get better at it, okay, and you find different ways to get better and what you want and perfect it, it is the same thing when it comes to these type of organized serial killers or even rapists. So let's say this here is that, okay, we know this person is clearly a, a necrophiliac from what was done with Blackburn, but you know, what he did to her body is a sadistic expression. Now we do have one of these cases that we actually highlighted and we were interested in, the one in Illinois, is that this was a sexual attack. They even categorize it as a sadistic sexual assault, but they go out of their way to specify that she was not raped. So it's all about definition, because when you talk about sodomy, and I don't know if they work in the definition of the crime of sodomy, it could be insertion of any object. And it's all about perspectives and how you define it. Sadistic acts are usually involved in insertion of objects in any orifice. Now, we know that with Blackburn is that obviously the exact precise burning that was done on her was a sadistic act, basically when it comes to humiliation, but it's not actively sadistic. So this is where you're getting with the boundary lines. But let's say this person is doing the sadistic pursuit of humiliating her. She was posed, not staged, right by the threshold of the door. Spread eagle, basically, arms out. Now that's purposeful humiliation and also for him how he envisions his fantasy of the object and what he is torturing or kind of like painting his canvas for his fantasy because there was seminal fluid that was present. So he was aroused in what he did with Blackburn. But what happens over time is that he may find his fantasy, he might like the sadistic component of torture when the person's fighting. So you have indirect expressions of sadism and arousal in the necrophilic post-mortem mutilation, but he might find this one fought a little bit when I try to blitz attack her, and I kind of liked it. I got a little arousal from that. And then he says, okay, well, I'm going to try to just torture this individual and rape him and leave. And they might find that this is heightened and they prefer this way. But it's just like preferences in our life, you know, sometimes we like a certain color for a while and we go back to another color. You can't think linearly in this. So you're going to go back and forth between these preferences. So maybe today you like the color blue and this other person, you know, I think I'm going to go for yellow. Mm -hmm. And so this is what actually makes it difficult. With Blackburn, the postmortem mutilation is extremely rare amongst all homicides. But yet the thing that muddies the waters a bit is that this person can actually become purely sadistic in what he does in torturing victims. So this is what we have here right now with the police file is these victims that they identified across state lines. The details that we have on the murders in Hartford, Harrisburg, and Pittsburgh and the attack in Des Plaines are sparse as all that exists in Kate's case file are the teletypes received by the Albany police in the original investigation. Students at the Cold Case Analysis Center are continuing to search newspapers in those areas for any stories relating to the cases, and Melissa is in the process of requesting more information from the various police departments. And that step 
is just one way the current investigation into Kate's murder is moving forward. So very similarly to the multifaceted investigation that was taking place in 1964 and immediately after, right now in our present day investigation, we're also trying a couple different routes simultaneously. We have the students at the Cold Case Analysis Center conducting hours upon hours of research, and they're doing a fantastic job with that. They are digesting information, reorganizing it, and allowing us to really organize our efforts and weed through pages upon pages of interviews, and it's been very helpful. So with the research aspect, we're looking through the old interviews, the old suspects, analyzing their behavior and possibly linking the crimes together based on their criminal history. Now we have that hindsight's 2020 advantage of knowing what some of them have been up to since our crime date in 1964. And that's something that we've talked about with certain suspects that have come up that at the time of the crime, they didn't have any or very little criminal history. And once you look back on them in 2019, the 70s and 80s, they committed some heinous crimes. And that obviously upgrades their significance in our investigation. While we're doing that, I'm also evaluating our physical evidence. We've sent all of our physical evidence back into the lab to be tested. There's fingerprint evidence that's still to be evaluated that hasn't been evaluated yet. And we're also looking to use new technology to obtain possible DNA evidence. I'm really interested in the pillowcase. Some of our evidence that we had sent into the lab came back negative for suspect DNA or possible suspect DNA profile. And what we're looking to do with some of that evidence that we feel might have the opportunity to have some DNA present that hasn't been evaluated is we're looking at new technology, specifically the MVAC DNA collection system. The MVAC is a sterile wet vacuum. Collection solution is sprayed onto the surface while simultaneously vacuuming the surface. It creates a mini hurricane that loosens the DNA material, which is transferred to the collection bottle and later concentrated onto a filter that can be tested. The reason why we want to reevaluate some of that evidence, specifically what I'm looking at is the pillowcase from the pillows that were in the kitchen, is when you have DNA testing done on a large item, like the pillowcase we're talking about, is they do cuttings of that item and they evaluate the pillowcase and decide what's going to have the highest probability, what area on the pillowcase is going to have the highest probability of having DNA evidence present. And they do a cutting of that pillowcase and then they test that cutting for DNA. So they're not taking the entire physical pillowcase and testing that whole thing. With the MVAC system, that is exactly what they do. They run the system over the entire pillowcase, and that's where you have to weigh cost versus benefit because once you run that MVAC over that entire pillowcase, you're rolling the dice and you're taking a chance on that. But we're at the point now where we want to try everything that we have available to us. So through the Cold Case Center, we're going to send that pillowcase out for the MVAC testing on that. There's another piece of evidence found the day after Kate's murder that they're hoping to use the MVAC on as well. A piece of paper that was recovered on Colony Street the following day after Kate was discovered. We had the crime scene detail still present in the neighborhood, and they found a piece of paper 
And it was indicative of somebody tearing corner off of a page and it had the number 117 written on it. And as we know, that's the numeric of Kate's address. That piece of paper was collected and placed into an envelope for evidence and it was never touched. So we sent that into the lab and that was evaluated for fingerprint evidence. And there was ridge detail present that was developed on that piece of paper. Unfortunately, there was not enough ridge detail to be suitable for comparison and we're looking at the possibility of evaluating that piece of paper for DNA evidence as well. Because present day, if you have fingerprint evidence, you develop the area for fingerprints, develop those fingerprints, and then you would swab that after for DNA evidence. Because if someone's leaving fingerprints, we know that obviously somebody touched that area. Another piece of evidence still held by the Albany Police Department is the Saturday evening newspaper, tucked under Kate's mat and found undisturbed. The paper would have printed around 4 o'clock in the evening and arrived at Kate's around 6, which is around the last time Kate was seen. Just as we have been unable to find the teenagers who hung out at the garages near Kate's home, we have been unable to get in contact with a paperboy who had Kate as their customer. If you or someone you know knows who this may have been, please contact us as they might have caught a glimpse of the killer. The most recent avenue being pursued in the current investigation is one officials are not taking lightly. We're at the point now where we're investigating, we're looking into every avenue possible for evidence collection, and we've even talked about the idea of an exhumation of Kate's remains, and this is something that we don't take lightly. We've talked about it on and off for several months at this point, and again, when your costs and your benefits, and obviously we don't want to do something that we don't think will be fruitful, but we also don't want to write off an opportunity to collect potentially highly valuable evidence. And we've talked to Sandy and the family, and while it's a very sensitive and tough decision to make, we're all on the same page where if it's going to be fruitful for our investigation, we want to do whatever we can do at this point. So we're lucky in that aspect that we have that. Kate's case once packed away for decades, buried under new cases, and only brought out when family members or retired detectives had new information to add to the looming case file, is now being actively investigated. There is so much to Kate's case, and over the course of the past five episodes, we have tried to paint the clearest picture we can to better understand who Kate was and who may be responsible for her brutal killing. Albany Police Department's willingness to work with the Cold Case Analysis Center at the College of St. Rose and us here at WGY to truly shed light on Kate's case is commendable. Their readiness to try this new approach of looking at cold cases gives hope to families that their loved ones' cases are no longer forgotten. APD and the Cold Case Center are continuing to investigate Kate's case, Any updates we receive will be released. We believe that Kate's case can be solved. The horrendous acts she endured are unique and rare, and with the modern-day ability to disseminate the details of her case, we are hopeful that someone somewhere will be able to provide new connections leading to answers. As I stated in Episode 1, this season... We're investigating two cold cases. The second case is the 1959 murder of Ruth Whitman, an 18-year-old woman from Albany 
who was found face down in a ditch on Sand Creek Road in Colony. This is where I would start to transition into her case and discuss what was in store for next week's episode. When we first received Ruth's case, it seemed pretty straightforward. The original investigation was mishandled and the suspect seemingly was obvious. However, over the course of the past five weeks, we have received new information that needs to be sorted through fully, including the discovery of a serial killer who lived in close proximity to Ruth. Upstate Unsolved Season 2 will return on Thursday, December 5th, 2019. Until next time, I'm Phoebe Lefebvre. This is Upstate Unsolved. Beyond the headlines of Upstate New York's Unsolved Crimes. Hosted and produced by Phoebe Lefebvre. Executive producer, Diane Donato. Voiceover by Jeff Wolf. In partnership with the Cold Case Analysis Center at the College of St. Rose. An exclusive presentation of WGY and iHeartRadio. If you or someone you know has information that can help solve a cold case, call 518-485-3017 to leave an anonymous tip. To leave an anonymous tip for Catherine Blackburn's case, call 518-462-8039. To leave an anonymous tip for Ruth Whitman's case, call 518-783-2754. Get more information about Upstate Unsolved at WGY.com or search for Upstate Unsolved on Facebook or Twitter. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or the College of St. Rose. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.